0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. So it's already February. What are you waiting for? Invest in yourself this year and start learning something new at lynda.com with a free 10-day trial. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find that work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, or find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills, in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. So sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com forward slash WWII, and you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, access to view tutorials on tablets and iPhone and Android mobile devices, access to new courses added every week, Some of the courses and videos you might like are ones like Getting Things Done by David Allen, the best-selling author, shares his tips for being more productive, Small Business Secrets, Gamification of Learning, or Business Writing Fundamentals. As for some of the courses I've tried and loved, um, I've been using the Photoshop to make even more designs for my coffee mugs, so expect to see an explosion of those on the website. And there's always WordPress for those of you who are just dying to start your own podcast. And I know you are. You've written to me. So, after you listen to this episode and learn how the Germans almost lost Crete, invest in yourself and sign up in a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting, this is important, lynda.com forward slash WWII. Go ahead. I challenge you to learn something new in 2015. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 120, Crete, Part 1. As covered last time, although General Freiburg was now receiving intercepts from ULTRA, the information was not being used to its best advantage. This is not finger-pointing, but simply stating the fact that the Distribution of Allied troops was not set up in such a way as to maximize the interruption of the Axis plan of attack. The airfields were not made the priority that the information seemed to indicate. So, instead of a guaranteed Nazi bloodbath, the attackers had a fighting chance. The defenses under the command of Freiburg were able to add the 25,000 men from Greece but, as can be expected, post their hasty evacuation, the men only had their sidearms, those that had any weapons. Their clothes were the worst for wear. They did not have their entrenching tools, again deemed not imperative by the captains who picked them up. Also, the men suffered from exhaustion, lice, and dysentery. All this combined for a low fighting morale, as reported by Freiburg to Wavell after his quick inspection, once the men were landed. Whereas the men already stationed on Crete may have looked better, been more rested, but they had suffered as well, though less in the extreme. When Greece came under German attack, Crete, the next obvious stage of Allied defense, came under a German bombing campaign. Those evacuees that were taken to Suda Bay, passed by the still-flaming hull of the Eleonora Marsk, a 10,000 ton tanker. It had been attacked on April 24th, and the subsequent burning of its hull lasted for almost a week. Surrounding the ship's husks, bobbing up and down on the waves, were the bodies of some of its crew and passengers. The remains of the HMS York was visible to those at Suda Bay as well. Many others in their thousands were landed at Kenea to the west of Suda, and were given aid by locals of what they had. The soldiers rested and inhaled the ice cream and oranges offered to them. When these were consumed, the men of the Welsh Regiment, being held back in reserve, offered the beleaguered men what chocolate, tea, and cigarettes they had. As can be expected, the number of men in need far exceeded the local resources which meant their diet was mostly made up of bully beef and hardtack biscuits, with some jam. The empty beef cans were then used to drink water, the empty petrol cans used as cooking pots. Fribourg made a note of this ingenuity. He also recorded his desire to rid the island, and himself, of the 15,000 Italian prisoners, any Greek civilians who escaped from the mainland, as well as the Thousands of Greeks and Anzacs who were injured. The 7th General Hospital, located three miles to the west of Kenea, was quickly overwhelmed. On a darker note, as invention is the mother of necessity, the hungry, half-dressed soldiers of all nationalities started stealing what they needed to survive. But as much as this frustrated the straight-shooting Freiburg, this do-whatever-it-takes-to-get-things-done attitude would come in handy in Crete's soon-to-be darker days. Yet, it's worth noting there were those who had it worse, and they were the Italian prisoners. After finding out how the Cretans treated killers of innocence, they couldn't wait to get behind barbed wire, anything to be further away from the local men who carried rifles slung over their shoulder, or the women who carried knives and were more apt to use them. To add to this travesty of woes that was Crete's part of this war, the island's irrepressible Cretan 5th Division that had repulsed the Italian allies were now trapped on the mainland and made prisoners. They had not been allowed to use the shipping of the allies, who were focused on saving their own men. Yet the leader of the Cretan 5th, a Greek, managed to escape to the island, but his life was cut short by an assassin's bullet. The attitude of the British and ANZAC soldiers was, serves him right for leaving his men. And just one more story of missed potential in this tale of the Battle of Crete, and that is of SOE agent John Pendleberry. Back in June of 1940, Churchill created the Special Operations Executive. The name, like so many others, was meaningless. But the SOE's job was to organize local civilian defense units that could wreak havoc on German resources behind enemy lines and pave the way for the Allies' return. And as many times as this has happened in British history, and I have certainly lost count, Pendlebury, who had no background in special operations or Crete history, culture, or language, was chosen to organize local resistance here, and he excelled at it. Well, as much as he was allowed to. Freinberg didn't go in for all this outside-the-box military thinking, and so didn't give Pendleberry and the men who flocked to his cause arms. So, soon after arriving on the island, John Pendleberry became the unofficial king of the island. He knew all the right people in all the wrong places, was instantly recognized, and could walk into any town or bar without worry about his safety. The man was beloved by the Cretans, who knew he was there for them. He was known for his glass eye and his sword stick, and that he soon knew the best places for snipers and for sabotage to be carried out. The man gave himself to the cause, which, unfortunately, was doomed to fail without the support he needed. His last letter to his wife held the words, Love and adieu." but it would get much worse for the Cretans after the island's fall. Because the Allies did not incorporate the local resistance groups, they had no protection under the laws of warfare. They were seen and treated as guerrillas instead of resistance fighters. Their lot upon capture was a firing squad with no trial. As the Germans got closer to their planned invasion date, the Luftwaffe stepped up its measures to ensure that the intended targets on the island were exhausted, disorganized, and hopefully empty-handed. As the first half of May came and went, more Allied shipping was attacked, damaged, or sunk. Fewer ships of guns and ammunition made it to the island. By May 20th, just before the Germans came, out of the 27,000 tons of food sent to Crete, only 3,000 tons arrived. As for the newly arrived men who recovered some of their morale over those three weeks, they entered into a game of cat and mouse with the German airplanes. The fighters and bombers buzzed the island constantly, looking for movement or the telltale sign of dust, kicked up by feet or wheels. The men cut narrow trenches into the ground and would lie low as the aircraft flew over. The trenches, these slits in the ground, would prove their worth in the coming days. Also, the gunners on the ground were either ordered or figured out very early not to shoot at the planes, even though they were, at times, only 50 feet over their heads. The reason was simple. Given the number of planes in the air or in the area, any reply from the ground, which might have taken out a plane or two, would have been met with overwhelming force. So, as the Luftwaffe bombed what they could and shot at anything that moved, the men below husbanded their numbers and their shells. The deaths from the indiscriminate bombings killed far fewer than imagined by the pilots. This, combined with swimming in the sea, lying under the trees, and the kindness of the locals, did much to restore the spirit of the men who had faced hell in Greece. When Freyberg conducted his last tour before the attack, he was able to report to Wavell that all ranks are fit and morale is high. I feel that, at least, we will give an excellent account of ourselves, which was much better than his first report. Yet the words victory nor success were contained in the message. By the night of May 19th, the Anzac forces had recovered enough to enjoy some celebrating at night. When the air raids were less severe. In the early morning hours of May twentieth, some of the parties were still in full swing, yet that is until the military police barged in with the news that the Germans were coming. In contrast to the Allied troops, the Germans' routine had been just as disciplined as if they had been preparing for a parade through the streets of berlin. The fifth Mountain Division which had seen action in Greece, was stationed with the 7th Parachutist Division, and they were both at full strength. Each one had its three battalions, and each of those their three full companies. And each of those had light machine gunners and eight tommy gunners. There were also, assigned to each section, two dreaded snipers, who would make life hell for the enemy during a siege. Each company had flamethrowers and light and heavy mortar groups. But no one expected these mortar units to take out heavy or infantry tanks that were on the island, but they certainly could get at the troops, no matter what they were hiding behind. As for these heavier weapons, they would be dropped separately. As for on their person, each man had a pistol and a long knife. Per the attack plan, each German soldier carried... Enough rations for two days bread, sugar, chocolate, and rusks, rye sourdough bread. Now, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane is young man's work. The average age of the parachutists were in their early 20s, and these men did not know exactly where they were going, even once they were in the air. All they knew, all they had trained for, was to take whatever target was theirs within 40 minutes. By 0500, May 20th, the first of the 120 JU-52s began its start down the runway. Yet even before this, the 70 gliders had been dragged into the air by their JU-52s an hour before. Once all were up, they started their journey south. After an interminable time in the air, the fuselage door opened up. The air came rushing in. The young men snagged their safety clips to a bar overhead. A klaxon shattered the droning of the engines, and the men, joined tightly together, jumped out. The next battle of World War II was underway. Tuesday, May 20th, seemed to be shaping up to be a beautiful, clear, sunny, probably hot day. The men on the ground, asleep in their trenches, were awoken by the air raid sirens. Yet this did not disturb the men unduly. They had been attacked most mornings for the last few weeks. The sirens sounded, the droning engines approached. Bombs were dropped, machine guns were rattled off. But, as had happened so many times before, casualties were few. Yet the Allied men would later recall, this time the area attacked was smaller, more focused. The men on Hill 107, just south of May Airfield were the ones strafed and bombed. But again, the men were hunkered down in their holes, relatively safe. By 7.30 a.m., the planes were gone, the air silent, and then the all-clear signal given. But before the men could get too far into their day, a second wave of planes came. This just before 8 a.m. Yet this time, the targeted area was over a much wider surface. Soon, German planes filled the sky. The men below did not know from which diving planes to run from. Strafing and bombing came at such an intensity. Communications were soon out. More than a few foxholes were covered over, and the men trapped underneath, who would spend the rest of their day digging themselves out. As for those who lived through the Great War, the bombing they suffered now outdid their worst day back then which gives one a true understanding of the intensity. For those officers who had a few seconds to think clearly, an attack of this magnitude could only mean one thing. The invasion was imminent. After this second air attack faded away, silence crept back over the island. Gradually, the men realized they were hearing birds chirping. Then, equally gradually, a new sound of engines filled the air, The defenders started looking up one by one, yet what they saw did not match what they heard. Descending to the island was a series of gliders. If the men had not looked up, they would have been taken completely by surprise. And although they were now aware of the approaching threat, many did not fire. The men were under orders not to fire unless directly attacked, and the gliders coming down did so elsewhere, respective of most of the men's positions. Also, their parachutists that had just jumped out of their JU-52s were floating down, again, not directly on the men. So, many did not fire. Another reason for this lack of response for many of the men was that this was the first time they had ever seen a parachute in action. It was something to behold. More than one soldier after the war commented that they could have done significant damage to the gliders and to the men coming down, but orders were orders. Yet some of those manning in guns opened fire, and more than one glider disintegrated, releasing the men from its hold. But even this supposed turkey shoot was not that easy, as the earlier strafing and bombing had created dust clouds that now rose and blocked the views of some of the gunners. When some of the Anzacs were told how parachutes operated, their response was, bullshit. But now they were seeing it firsthand, and gazed upward. But then, snapping out of their trance, they lifted their guns and started firing at the closest enemy soldiers to them. The Germans' average descent was 20 seconds long, an eternity to be more or less defenseless. For those Germans who landed practically on or very close by any dug-in units, very, very few were still alive by the time they hit the ground. For some of the Allied troops who missed their targets, they noticed their bullets caught the parachutes on fire, only to have the falling men suddenly hurled down. Others saw this and purposefully aimed for the cloth. It was a larger and therefore easier target to hit. Others quickly figured out that by aiming at the Germans' boots, if you missed your target, the bullet would probably still strike, just higher up on the body. As for those Germans that landed in between Maleme and Plantingas to the east, along the coast road, they were coming down practically on top of the 22nd and 23rd New Zealand battalions. The vast majority of these attackers landed dead or severely wounded. Yet by this time, some of those that landed beyond these or other groupings of men had hid themselves in the trees, or the like, and were now taking shots at the ground forces. And some of those shooting from far away were the professional snipers. An Anzac would be hit, a friend would come to his aid, only to be killed or wounded himself. Then the cycle would repeat itself. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. Regardless of what was happening on the ground, the Germans stuck to their schedule, which meant larger boxes of weapons and munitions started coming down. More often than not, those boxes came down nearby Allied positions. The Anzacs at Maleme ripped open the containers, thus arming many of their own who had no weapons to speak of. As mentioned, the Germans were at first focused on the airfield at Maleme and the area around But it was at those two points that the German glider teams and parachutists suffered massive casualties, percentages far beyond what was acceptable if the term success was ever to be used. Yet there were two spots that the Germans had landed and held. And this was only because there had been no Allied troops in place to greet them. The first was the open flat field to the west or left of the riverbed itself to the west of Maleme. The second was the area about five kilometers, or just over three miles, south of Galatas, itself along the coast, in between Maleme and Cania to the east. And as for who was truly responsible, Wavell or Freiburg, of the field west of the riverbed left undefended, it didn't matter now. The Germans controlled the area. Now that the attack was in earnest, the sky was still filled with German aircraft, as well as troops descending to the ground. By 8.15 a.m., the concentration of landing German soldiers was to the west, east, and south of Maleme airfield. The only thing stopping them from landing to the north was that there was only water there. The Maleme airstrip had to be surrounded and taken. The attackers that landed to the south and east of the airstrip suffered heavy casualties. The men to the west did not. Their comrades, who had come down before them, controlled the area. Parachutists had also landed near Hill 107, just to the south of the airfield. Whoever controlled the hill had a commanding view of the entire area. The battling continued. Just before 11 a.m. that morning, Colonel Andrew, in local command, had a situation report sent to Brigadier Harkest. As far as he could tell, about 100 enemy troops were now near the airfield, and about 150 each on either side of it. What Andrew didn't report, because he didn't know, was that there were another 1,000 men to the west in the open field. But rising dust storms from the various battles had blocked his view. The Germans on the ground were from the 1st Battalion of the Assault Regiment Glider Detachment. These soldiers were commanded by General Mendel, and the 1st Battalion bled that morning. Serving under Mendel was Lieutenant von Plessen. One of his gliders was shot out of the sky before anyone could jump, and when the remaining gliders came in, they came under intense fire. Within an hour of the landing, Plessen and most of his were dead. The remaining were pinned down, unable to join the other glider groups. Another group, led by Sherber, had the misfortune to land practically on top of the New Zealand 21st and 23rd battalions, and paid the price for it. They were supposed to land east of the airfield, help capture it, and then head further east to join up with others at Kenea. But they wouldn't be helping anyone. Major Coe, who had about a 100 men with him after losing many more, had the job of taking Hill 107. Victory was far from certain, but orders were orders. Major Braun, with his seventy-two remaining men, were to take the bridge over the River riverbed. The water may have been missing, but it was much easier to use the bridge rather than cross over the wide area of uneven rocks. But of all of them, Captain Garrick was the luckiest. He and his had been able to land in the undefended field to the west slowly the various assault groups either coalesced or hunkered down eventually they were able to either resist the defenders in an organized way or actually despite their losses begin to move out to their objectives far to the west beyond the open flat field near the riverbed the german troops led by lieutenant merb came down just outside castelli and there the first greek regiment waited for them supported by locals. The Greeks had about 600 rifles with them, but only three rounds per rifle. Not that it mattered. The locals knew every inch of the ground and used that knowledge to sneak up close to the Germans, then suddenly rose and charged at them with knives or large sticks. Many locals died this way, but they took many Germans with them. And each time a German soldier died, another local now had a gun. Soon the attackers, reduced to a small enough number to negate any thoughts of an offensive, backed themselves into a farmhouse. The professional Greek soldiers were proud of the work done so far and readied to surround the farmhouse, per military prudence. The locals had other ideas. They charged the house, losing many as they closed in on the trapped Germans, but made their way inside and started hacking at the attackers. The surviving Germans... 17 in all, surrendered and were quickly taken to a police station to keep them safe from the Cretans. Meanwhile, back at the Maleme airfield, Major Braun had been able to capture the bridge just to the southwest of the airstrip, yet he was now under intense defensive fire. Before too long, Braun lay dead. His men were pinned down. General Mendel, just before he was hit, several times and removed from the front, ordered that bronze men were to be reinforced, that the bridge was to be held, and for those attacking Hill 107 were to be assisted. And there was a weak spot within the Allied line around the airfield. Just on the eastern side of the bridge, between the airfield and Hill 107, was an RAF camp. The men there were not trained infantrymen and were not armed as infantrymen. But they were there and would have to do. Not that the Germans knew this, but if they got off the bridge, they could probably push the RAF personnel aside and make for the base of the hill. Yet the men of the RAF camp had already proven their mettle. A glider under the command of Major Coe had crash-landed nearby, and the air support men had been able to take out many of the Germans as they tried to exit the plane. Soon, numerous German corpses laid around the aircraft. The few survivors ran for the bridge, which, by now, was in their comrades' hands. But soon after this, or maybe because of it, the RAF camp was bombed. The men scattered. Now, this part of the defensive circle around the airfield, at the 7 o'clock position, and of the northwest corner of the base of Hill 107, was even weaker than before. By now, every German in the area could see disaster before them. It wouldn't take much for this to end in an Allied victory and a German slaughter. So those Germans who held the bridge gathered up what RAF personnel prisoners they had, put those poor souls in front of them, and started walking across the bridge. On came the Germans with their human shield, right at the slit trench of Company C. The New Zealanders, lying in these ditches, could see what was happening and held their fire. But as the Germans got closer, they started firing on C-Company, who kept their heads down as best they could and collectively decided not to fire back. The Germans came on, firing as best they could, while hiding behind their prisoners, who had their arms up and Tommy guns at their backs. Then the ranking man, closest to the increasingly desperate situation, said to his men, "'Hang on. Hang on.'" His men guessed his plan. As the Germans came within 40 yards of the closest trench, the man, his name Haddon Donald, yelled, "'Drop! We're going to fire!' The prisoners did, and then the men of C Company did. Many Germans were hit. The survivors ran back to the bridge." Unfortunately, at least six RAF men were hit as well, and now laid among the attackers. By noon, the only non-contained Germans in the area were either to the west of the riverbed or at the base of Hill 107, where they had secured a hold. As for the Allies, those pinned down in the slit trenches, or without some cover over their heads, were burned by the midday sun the Germans suffered as well, and still had the onus of subduing the island. As the Germans were reorganizing after their initial losses in the west, Group Center was assigned the task of capturing Canea, some 15 kilometers, or 9 miles, to the east of Meleme. The group had been under the command of General Sussman, but his glider, after almost colliding with a bomber, had its wings fold up, and so crashed on the island, of Jenea. Everyone on board was killed, but the battle continued. One of the two detachments, led by Captain Von der Heidt, missed their landing zone in the confusion, but still managed to come down relatively safe around Perivolia, five kilometers or three miles south of Kinea. The other detachment was scattered to hell and back, and those that were of small groups were killed by the locals. Still, 350 of them managed to make their way to a local prison located just to the west of Captain von der position. The 7th Company landed just south of Gatelas, itself to the west of Knea. Those men tried to take a nearby hill named Pink Hill, but were repulsed by the men of the New Zealand Petrol Company and their Bren guns. Yet the Germans had some success, The 12th Company was able to clear the Greeks off of Cemetery Hill, itself just next to Pink Hill, and take that, so they had a commanding view of the area. As things stood at the moment, the Allies still held Canea and the Coast Road, with the Germans in control of a large section of territory just to their south, except for the 7th General Hospital along the coast, west of Canea, between Galatas and Canea. Men from the German 10th Company landed near the hospital, and their commander, Nagel, had them move in cautiously, as wounded German prisoners were known to be held there. As the invaders came floating down, those wounded Allied patients that could left their beds and looked for nearby trenches to hide in. The German patients slash prisoners used mirrors to flash sunlight and guide their comrades to them. By 11 a.m., the 10th Company controlled the hospital. In one stroke, the road from Knie to Meleme was bifurcated. Not to mention, a starting point to later attack Knie itself had been established. Now that they were in control, the Germans made an Allied prisoner climb up a tree and hang a white flag. And this worked as the Luftwaffe soon stopped strafing the building and its grounds. But then several Allied light tanks showed up and started shooting what Germans were near the windows. The 300 men left with Nagel did not have anything strong enough to combat the tanks, so it was decided to make good their escape and head south to join with group center. Once again, the Germans gathered what prisoners could walk and took them as they left the area. Coming upon a New Zealand patrol, the Germans made their prisoners keep quiet. The patrol sensed nothing, as they were too far away to get a good look. But within a few minutes, the patrol came back. A nervous German pilot, his plane had been shot down, panicked and fired a gun. The New Zealand 19th Battalion fired back with their Bren guns. At first, the defenders did not know their comrades were among the Germans, and a few were killed. But soon the 19th realized this, and were more selective with their shots. For the next hour, the battle raged. The Germans were outgunned and soon outnumbered as more New Zealanders came up from behind. The hospital was retaken. The Germans with Nagel were reduced to a few, and those few surrendered. Nagel was killed during the firefight. The day wore on, as did the heat. The pills the Germans were given to chase away fatigue piqued their thirst. Yet the men carried very little water, and what water they found nearby was not for drinking. The attackers suffered in the heat as the hours went by. If that were not bad enough, some of the German subcommanders, such as Lieutenant Gentz, had just before his plane took off been given a note. The note read simply, we were wrong in our estimation that 12,000 troops were protecting Crete. A more accurate number was 48,000. Yet the German plan was unaltered. Further to the east, about 40 kilometers, or almost 25 miles, was the town of Rititmo. Its airfield was another 8 kilometers, or 5 miles, to the east, and they were about to have their turn. Assigned to capturing the town and airfield was Colonel Sturm of the 2nd Parachute Rifle Regiment, also a part of Group Center. Sturm's plan was to have Captain Weidman use the whole of the 3rd Battalion, joined by heavy machine gun and artillery units, land at Periviola, it shared the name with the Periviola near Cania, about two and a half kilometers east of Ratitmo. secure that and then move west against the town. Meanwhile, Major Koh and his men, the smaller unit of the two, but they had flamethrowers and motorcycles jumping with them, were to land east of the airfield, organize themselves, and then capture the airstrip. Straightforward enough, but even this direct plan of attack was to go horribly wrong. For one, German reconnaissance had only spotted one of the six heavy guns stationed in between the town and airfield. They were hidden in tree-covered hills in between the two targets, just below the coast road as were Greek reserves and two infantry tanks. The Allied defense here was situated thus. There are two hills on either side of the airfield, just to the south. Hill A was to the east of the landing area, just below a olive oil factory, and Hill B was to the airstrips west, in between the airfield and the town, but again a bit to the south. On Hill A, closest to the airfield, was recently promoted Australian Lieutenant Colonel Ian Campbell, commanding officer. The defense was his responsibility. With him on Hill A were six heavy guns, a battalion, and a machine gun platoon. Hill B, to the west, had slightly less protection, but altogether there were some 1,300 men, and in between the hills, along the ridge, were 2,003 Greek soldiers but they only had a few rifles. Speaking of which, not every man on Hill A or B had a weapon either. At four that afternoon, the German fighters and bombers came in. But as everyone on the ground tried to get even closer to the dirt, they realized there were only 20 or so attacking planes, not the mammoth air assault that had transpired to the west. So Campbell had his guns stationed at the airfield take aim at the relatively few attacking planes, and fire. Those troops on the hill with him, with their heavy caliber guns, did the same. Both sides did what damage they could. Next came the 160 or so transport planes, 15 minutes later. Just like the attackers, the JU-52s came in from the east, flying along the coast. But the guns on the ground had their range after shooting at the fighters and bombers. Six planes were immediately brought down. Panic ensued, and some of the men coming down landed in the water and drowned, dragged down by their equipment were smothered by their parachutes. Of all the men that jumped around Ratitmo, only two companies landed in the right place. Not that this helped some of Crowe's men, who came down right in front of Hill A, where Campbell had his six heavy guns. Most of the Germans died before making landfall, yet Co and many of his landed along the coast, away from Hill A, in between the olive oil factory and the airfield. Co wasted no time in making for Hill A, and he picked up stragglers along the way. With better weapons and using the brush to mask their approach, the attackers were able to take out many of the large gun crews. Hill A seemed about to fall. But Campbell quickly called up half of his reserves and the two infantry tanks, which turned out to be practically useless in the rough terrain. Yet the quick response of the reserve force checked Coe and his men. They had a foothold, but no more. On the morrow would the contest of Hill A be decided. Knowing this, Campbell radioed Freiburg, asking for reinforcements. But the CO refused to use his nearby reserves So quickly, Campbell was on his own, so planned on using every man-jack he had to hold the hill. To the west, Hill B was attacked by Colonel Sturm, but his men suffered the same fate as their comrades when coming down. Planes were shot out of the sky, many Germans were killed before or just after reaching the ground. Sturm and those closest to him only survived because of the deaths of their comrades had bought them precious time. But just before full dark, Major Sandover, in charge of the troops on Hill B, used his entire battalion to scour the area and, before too long, captured many prisoners. Sturm would be among them by next morning. Sandover and his also gathered up many German supplies and weapons. When dawn came, Campbell was ready. Using every possible man, he charged the German position with a Greek regiment on each flank. The Germans were shocked by this direct attack and allowed themselves to be pushed back all the way to the olive oil factory along the coast and to the east of the airfield. As for Captain Weidmann, the other part of Colonel Sturm's force, he and his landed in the relatively safe area in between the town and the airfield. Yet once they were down, the closer they got to Etimo, the more they saw of Creton fierceness. Weidmann realized that taking the town would cost him dearly, more than he was willing to pay, so he set up a strong defensive work at Periviella, just to the east of Retitmo, and waited. The largest part of the German attack on Crete fell on the area around Heraklion, to the far east. Group east, under Colonel Brower, was to capture the city the airstrip, and the 4-kilometer open beach area in between the two. This would give the 85th Rifle Regiment space to land, organize, and then begin the conquest of the eastern half of the island. But just like Rititmo, the Germans massively underestimated the number of defending troops. Instead of the 400-man pushover at Heraklion, there would be waiting three British battalions one Australian battalion, and men from an artillery regiment who were now assigned infantry reserve status. Again, it's worth pointing out the defenses of the Allies. The airfield to the east or right of the walled town was protected by the second Black Watch. Besides the airstrip itself, these men held an area at least one kilometer to the west and two kilometers to the south of the airfield. The area to the east of the landing area was coastline and sea. Nature had secured this for them. Just to the south of the airstrip was a hill called Hill East, which the watch held as well. Their defense of the airfield was augmented by two Borforce guns at either end of the airstrip and two infantry tanks. Just to the west, or left of the Black Watch, was the 2-4 Australian Battalion. They held an area just as large as the Watch, but as that group's area controlled the airfield and a large part of the Coast Road, the Aussies' most northern point just brushed the Coast Road. There were also two raised areas to their south, called the Charlies, and with these the Australians had a better view of the whole area. To the west or left of the Aussies, the men of the 7th Medium Regiment Royal Artillery controlled an area of the coast line and the coast road, not to mention the headquarters of the 14th Infantry Brigade. And just to the southwest of them were two other groups, one of the 2nd York and Lancaster, and the other the 2nd Leicesters. And finally, going more west to the town of Heraklion itself, this was guarded by the 3rd and 7th Greek regiments. Just as at Rotitmo, the Luftwaffe came in first to strafe and bombard. Hopefully, this would keep the enemy's heads down long enough for their parachutists to land in relative safety. At 4 p.m. that afternoon, two hours later than planned, 750 fighters and bombers harassed the Heraklion area for an hour. Only then did the transport aircraft come in again from the east. But during that hour of attack, the Allies showed great discipline by not firing back. To do so would have shown their positions and invited death. Certainly, some of their men died, not fighting back. But the survivors managed to hold on to their munitions and keep their locations secret. So, when the 150 Ju-52 transports flew in low and slow, Guns from the East Hill and the two other hills, the Charlies, opened up. Fifteen JUs were obliterated before the men could jump. The men on the hills later remarked that they were shooting not up, but level at the low-flying planes. It was another turkey shoot. The men coming down were hit by small arms fire, fire from the borefurs, the tanks or from the artillery. Either way, it didn't matter. Many. Many scores of young men came back down to the earth, already dead. Within twenty minutes, the majority of the German battalion that was dropped, half to the east and half to the west of the town, were dead. Some of the few survivors gathered in a barley field, but the Allies set out a light and then shot the Germans as they ran away from the flames. A few others Actually made it to the town itself, but then were chased by locals, being led by Pendlebury, the special agent, come unofficial king of Crete, and Captain Santanus. Not knowing or assuming the outcome of this attack, more German troops were parachuted near the Heraklion airport at 7:20 p.m. Taken by surprise, this attack group managed to push back the defenders, who were forced to take boats and leave the airfield from the east coastline. They would later be picked up by a British destroyer. That evening, the Germans believed that the majority of their forces had landed unopposed. So, Student readied for Phase 2, the landing of men from the 5th Mountain Division. Just before darkness, two more JU-52s were sent to land at the airfield at Meleme to prepare the way. As the planes touched down, they were assaulted on every side by enemy fire. The pilot poured on the power, lifting off as the firing continued. By midnight, Student realized, looking at what photos had been taken and what few reports had come in, the German officers who would normally send in reports were dead. That they held none of the airfields. The casualties had to be in the thousands. That many, if not most, of their men were dead, wounded, or captured. That the food, water, and medicine of those still alive on the island had to be running out. There was only one thing for it, as giving up was not an option. Student would pour everything he had left into a concentrated effort at Malame. Colonel Ramps' parachute battalion would be dropped off on either side of the town. At least there, Group West held some territory, and the airfield there now seemed to be in no man's land. Seaboard landings were also to be directed at Meleme. This was Student's last chance. The next day, May 21st, would bring victory or suicide. Better death by his own hand than by Hitler's agents. Of course, all this depended on if Group West could hold their position. Throughout the night. Epilogue. Just a few things I left out. I wasn't sure where to stick them in the storyline. But um, one group of German parachutists, when they were coming down, landed in a field of bamboo. They were literally impaled as they landed. Another thing when the um, Allies tried to use the two tanks at Retitmo and it didn't work, the Germans were able to get hold of those tanks and use them quite effectively. In the rough terrain, again, being very comfortable and having lots of practice with the tanks. And it has to be said, on both sides, there was outright slaughter of prisoners. Both sides lined up men they had captured who were defenseless and could not hurt them, and shot them. The Germans were mad at being shot while in the air, and the Allies were mad at everything since 1939. And on a final note, King George of Greece was on the island. Not that the Germans were looking for him, but their men came close enough to him, so he and his party of 40 others ran into the woods, crossed over some mountains, and were able to exit on the southern coast of the island. Later, he was picked up by the HMS decoy and landed at Alexandria. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, just want to quickly give a shout out to everyone. Um, first of all, thank you to Matthew R. from Novato, California, for buying a CD. Um, for Matt D. from Florida for becoming a member. And um, as far as donations, I got one from Vanessa S. in Blewit Spring, Australia. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. And Salim Mohammed of Surrey, UK. So thank you very much, guys, for supporting the show. Um, I hope you listen to the Churchill one and like that one. I'll try to stick more in there as I can. And now I'm off to do the two membership episodes. Um, we're wrapping up with David Sterling and the SAS, who are giving Rommel a very hard time in the desert. And then we'll start up a new um, series. So if you're considering membership, just check out worldwar2podcast.net, and you'll see all the details there. I think there's like 49 episodes so far. If you jump in, you get access to all 49. Take care, everyone.